Welcome to An Eye for Business. Exploring the entrepreneurial mindset of people who are blind or vision impaired. Brought to you in partnership between Blind Citizens Australia and Vision Australia. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of An Eye for Business. An Eye for Business is brought to you in conjunction with the Entrepreneurial Mindset webinar series, which is a part of the Eye to the Future project. We thank all the contributors to this podcast series and indeed the webinar series for their time and efforts in putting these programs together. This week we feature the story of Matt O'Kane. Matt has been severely vision impaired since birth, lives in New South Wales, and runs his own business doing digital forensics. Matt, thanks so much for joining us, and thanks for agreeing to be part of the series. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Vaughan. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up, and uh, how much vision do you have? I grew up in Sydney, and I grew up in... I was very lucky um, to grow up in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, Um I, 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 you know, I was born with no vision at all, and um, I've had multiple surgeries, and, and I, effectively, uh, I've got extremely low vision. So, um, with assistance, uh, I can read and get about with my with devices, and it's, it's a good it's a good stuff these days. But it's a very different as it was many years ago. And you work in a really interesting field, but uh, we'll talk about that shortly. Yeah. I'm interested to know what it was that led you there and why you started your own business rather than working for other people. All right. So um, uh, I have worked for other people and done my own business on and off for about 20 years. And I guess, in a way, this is my third business. Uh, So um, I started, I guess, you know, if you stretch your imagination, my first business is when I left school and I was lucky enough to have a friend who helped me get involved with um, computer support. And computer support at the time was an in-demand skill. And you didn't need you didn't need a lot of vision to do it. The challenge was getting to and from location. So back back then, um, you know, you had to actually get on site. You couldn't do things over the internet. And so that was challenging. Transport, as you know, is always challenging for uh, people who can't, you know, see very well. Um, and and so that was the biggest. But 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 the amount of money I was able to charge clients well and truly covered taxis and and transport and delays with that. So and it was great for an 18, 19, 20 year old. And eventually, I got really busy with uni. So I, I essentially gave away my client list that I built up over a couple of years. And that was my first mistake as a youngster, is you don't give away your client list. And you learn from from these kind of mistakes. And then I secondly had a software company, and I worked for other people in between, and that was okay. Um, And you know, the the second job was a software company, and we tried to build websites. And I grew that to a number of people working for me, um, but the challenge evolved there was was that you know my websites were becoming very globalized, and so when we were going to work, it was very difficult to maintain margins 
in Australia in a competitive environment that is effectively global. And so what I did was I overextended myself pretty quickly there and I learnt a valuable lesson that I need very strong um, um, systems that can scale. So the problem with software development is, custom software development, is that it's custom. And so every job is a little bit different and it's very difficult to achieve economies of scale when every job is a little bit different. So we learned from that as well. Uh, then I started working for other people. And now this is my third iteration. And this is, uh, you know, moving into um, digital forensics and cybersecurity. Um, you know, a few years back, I identified this as an emerging need. Uh, and so, and it was something because of my programming background, uh, I realized that I had a very different background to most of the competitors who had come from a police background or a military background. So I had a more intuitive understanding of the data than most of my competitors. And that gave me a bit of an advantage. So um, I won a few jobs off some competitors. And, you know, this is my fifth year of operation and we're starting to slowly um, grow slowly but but carefully grow because I'm a bit cautious from last time so I want to be very very careful and measured about it um, and also the work that we're doing now it's not it's not websites you know it's high stakes work you know we're doing you know we're doing investigations where you know we're looking into situations that can change um, someone's life you know people are you know and, and so we want to be very you know careful and measured and responsible uh, in and make sure that everything's working um, to the highest of standards. So, so that's why you know growth has to be very cautious. So, what is digital forensics? Okay, that's a good question. So, forensics is often misunderstood. I have a view that forensics, you know, it, it's a it's a it's a role that requires mastery and constant challenging of oneself. And so, I actually teach with the Australian. You know, at the UNSW Canberra, which is associated with the Australian Defence Force Academy and UNSW Sydney, and some other universities uh, as well. And, and so when I talk to my students, the way I define forensics is I say, look, forensics is really comes down to two words. Because we look at, uh, you know, people have seen shows like CSI, and I think they think that forensics is magic. But it's not. Forensics really has two meanings and two meanings only close and detailed study. So you're going through something really carefully, close, and you're going through it very detailed. And that's a forensic study. So digital forensics is we're going through data in a very close and a very detailed way. Uh, now there's, there's a lot of standards that govern uh, how you undertake uh, you know, planning for uh, collecting evidence and how you analyze evidence and how you report on evidence. Uh, but essentially, you're going through in a very careful and measured way. And so the main consumers of digital forensics would be uh, lawyers. So it might be litigating in a case and it requires some question, you know, to help to help illuminate what's going on. Or it might be an insurer who's looking at maybe after a malware strike and they want to assess how it happened and what damage has occurred. Or it might be a business that might be actively being hacked and we need to stop the hack and collect evidence for a possible future investigation. Um, or it might be a business who 
you know, um, is worried that their secrets are being stolen from internal people. So, so these are the kind of consumers of, of digital forensics product. So how do you become involved with that sector? Is it something that you have to be licensed for or uh, is it something that is really based on reputation and trust? Well, look, um, all cybersecurity uh, roles ultimately come down to trust. And it is trust. Trust is the main, um, if you like, uh, currency uh, of this. Uh, so I think... Um, how did I get into it? I suppose uh, I became friends of a number of lawyers over time, and they knew that I had a programming background, and you know they would ask me for advice. They'd say, "Look, you know, uh, we need some advice on a on a particular situation," and I'd give my advice, and I didn't know that they were also talking to an actual real digital forensics person in the background. They were just picking my brain. And that's what you do for friends. And eventually one day they said, look, I'm going to level with you. Uh, you know, we really want your input on a particular situation. So this was a IP theft case. And can you come in and have a look around? And I, I figured that would be about four days of work. And, you know, that was about five years ago. And so it's been lots of work coming from that time. Uh, and it's been great. And so how did I get into it? Well, I suppose when I gave them the report, you know, I, I took the view that it had to be, it had to be at a really high standard. So it had to have, um, it had to have, it had to be very clearly written, very clearly laid out. And, you know, the analysis had to be reasonable and easy to follow and very well founded. And when they read that, they were like, this is perfect. You know, you should actually do this as, as, as a thing, you know, you, you've, you've nailed it on your first go. So that was the feedback. You said you've been running for around about five years now. How do you find running your business as a vision impaired person? Have you received many attitudinal barriers or uh, other challenges that uh, you've experienced throughout your time? You know, in my whole career, if I think back carefully, I... Um, and, and I don't want look yeah I don't want to I don't know what is going on in people's heads right so I don't want to uh, I don't want to be presumptuous about what people are thinking uh, I actually think that at the moment my situation is a bit easier because they're not buying the person they're buying the service and as an employee they're kind of buying the person and to a certain extent in my view, it was a little bit trickier because, you know, an employee that you're setting up a relationship and, and if anyone's ever employed someone, you know that when you advertise a role, um, you know, you get a huge wave of people who apply for roles. That's changing, obviously. There's a, there's a difference, you know, the, there's differences in the employment market today. But still, uh, I, think, I think most people would be surprised how many people really apply for a particular role. And in order to stand out from that one, um, I've always wondered that that you know once people meet me and see me, you know, do they feel a little bit uncomfortable that my eyes are wandering? Um, you know, um, is it a bit weird that I'm using big magnifying devices when I'm you know reviewing documents in the foyer? Or uh, so um, I actually think, to a certain extent, this has been a bit easier. The challenge comes from um, 
with this particular role, I have to travel sometimes, and that's challenging. Um, and and the reason that's challenging is because if it's anything that's too far from from easy to access, easy to follow um, public transport or, or, or similar, um, then I have to refuse a job. I say, look, I can't do it. Um, if, I, if I'm not confident that that's navigatable, if that makes sense. Yeah, so that's the only time. So look, it's an interesting question. Um, to a certain extent, if you've ever been in a, so I do a lot of court time, and I've found that if I explain to people, look, you know, I'm gonna use a computer with large print to help me navigate documents. Uh, I hope that's okay. And most people are very understanding of that. It's been, that, that's been great, you know, uh, but that's really been, that's really um, been something that, that people have really helped with. You did mention that uh, you go to court fairly regularly. Has your vision impairment ever been used against you uh, without mentioning any specifics? Uh, you know, is that something you've encountered? Uh, the cases which I've been involved in uh, largely turn on, on, on data or data structures, right? So they don't necessarily turn on um, on, on, on forensic image examin examination or if they do, um, but it can be conducted in an environment which I can control. Uh, and, and, and so everything is fine uh, or I can seek assistance. So the thing is that, um, um, so it hasn't come up, uh, you know, um, I think that, um, you know, to a certain extent, uh, there's, there's a decorum in a courtroom and I think that it's obvious that, that I have a little bit of trouble seeing and I think that if someone pressured me on that, uh, it wouldn't be a good look for them. <laughs> so like, yeah, so I think that, you know, most people I've met are fairly professional and, um, you know, they're understanding. And I try and to minimise, because I don't want to draw, like, I don't want it to be in the way of things. So I work really hard to minimise impact on it. So from a practical point of view, so here's an example today, right? So um, um, the university, one of the universities asked me to give a recorded lecture. And um, I, you know, when I, this is the first time I've done it since COVID, right? So normally I'm at home, I've got a, a screen that I can put right next to my nose. Uh, I can make it as big as I like and I can read what's on it. And so I can, I can work from that and it's been great. Now I got into this studio and I realized I couldn't do that. Now that's, you know, that's my fault for not thinking it through, being, being fair about it. Uh, but then I went home, rehearsed it a few times, memorized most of the key points, um, you know, made slides that are really massive uh, uh, to help me jog my memory. And we had an attempt today and it went really well. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, with enough planning, you can work around problems and you can minimize the impact I've found. It means that it costed me a bit of time, sure, but, you know, I don't want to, I, I want to try and minimize it as an issue. One of the comments that I hear fairly often from people who are vision impaired is that uh, reading long form documents off a computer screen can often take them longer than uh, than it does for most people. Yep. Given the fact that you're doing very in-depth studies of data, do you think that the fact that you need to take extra time to read the screen might be an advantage? I never really thought about that. You know, to a certain extent, that's possibly true. I, mean, I don't want to. I don't want to claim any uh, any advantage here, but I will say that yes, I do have to actually go through. You know, I might get it. I might get documents in, and I might have to go through items very carefully. Uh, 
and maybe that that assists me. I never really considered it before, and and um, you know it's it's super important, especially if you're going through an affidavit or you're going through some important um, information. You know, you, you've got to, you know, you've got to, you've got to, you know, you've got to try and do the right thing. You know, you've, you're not, you're not representing a client. You're trying to assist people to find, uh, you know, to get closer to the truth. That that's your role, right? So so you've kind of got a bit of a responsibility to take it easy. And, and so maybe maybe it's advantage. Never thought about it, Vaughn. That's a good point. I, I uh, I'll take that as a you know I'll take the advantages where I find them. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective that you're not there to assist the client. You're there to get to the truth. Well, that, that's literally that's literally the, the, the expert code of conduct. So the expert code of conduct says um, that, that well, most of them, because there's, there's lots of expert codes of conduct, but they usually have a theme along the lines of um, that, that you've got to, you know, you have to help people reach the truth. Um, so, you know, for example, even if somebody doesn't go to court. So, for example, you, know, you might do a lot of workplace investigations. And, you know, in workplaces, there's people. And where there's people, um, sometimes, um, you know, people misunderstand each other. Uh, and that's, that's human nature, right? Um, and so someone might call in for, for, to look over something that, that's alleged to have happened. And you're not looking, you know, you're not looking to prove that it's happened. You're looking to find out if it's happened or not. You know what I mean? You want to, so your role here is to help them approach the truth and sort of say, look, here's, you know, digital forensics by its nature is not the most, is not the primary evidence. It's circumstantial evidence. It has to be supported with real evidence, right? But it helps them get closer to it. That's your role is to help them get closer to it. It doesn't serve anyone's purpose to not do that. I, I'm a big believer in that, actually. I mean, look, I can, I can just reflecting on some of your comments earlier, I mean, I can, I mean, my setup at, in my office is pretty good. You know, I can, I can get through documents. I'm probably, look, realistically, I'm not as fast as, a, as, as, as someone who has great vision, right? But I'm not, like, it's not taking me ages and maybe going a bit slow is probably to my advantage. Um, but it's not, it's not, like, you know, I'm, I'm not, um, you know, I'm blessed that I have more vision in this community than a lot of other people, um, so I, I can I can get around. So it's not too bad. And how have you found the more administrative side of running your business? For example, the bookkeeping, uh, marketing, all of that sort of stuff. I guess most of your marketing would be by reputation. Uh, well, I, I guess yeah, most of my work comes in uh, by referral, which is nice. Uh, I get some work off the website and social media. Uh, and so look, marketing is, is look for any small business, uh, marketing is the, you know, you could say everyone's got a theory about business, right? Uh, but the one theory that everyone has in common is that the whole point of our business is to find a niche and serve it, right? And, and how you serve it, you can serve it better, faster, cheaper, whatever that adjective is, or, you know, you, that's your, that's your mission. Right, so marketing is the most important thing that you're doing, uh, and and you know what, um, especially with the pandemic. So okay, I'll give you a good example of this. Right, um, now marketing for service-based businesses in the past, before the pandemic, uh, was very face-to-face. -face. They were interviewing the person to a certain extent, and for me, sometimes that's a bit of a disadvantage. Sometimes. 
um, there's two disadvantages. The first time, the first is travel, and the second time is you know sometimes people feel a bit. Not everyone, but some people feel a bit uncomfortable when when they see the eyes painting pointing in their own in their own fashion. Um, but you know that's not everyone, and, and that's great. But some people, you know, it's a small thing. You know, that some people feel a bit uncomfortable with, but that's okay. Uh, but when the pandemic happened, well, suddenly that's out the window. So I'm suddenly being able to quote for jobs in Newcastle. So if I had to go and do a quote for a job in Newcastle in the old days, what's that from Sydney? That's a three-hour train with a one hour sort of, you know, with one hour mucking around on each side for a one hour meeting, right? And then, so that's a whole day blown in a meeting and it might not go ahead. But in the pandemic, no one's doing that anymore. Everyone's sort of talking on the phone and it's been great. I've, I did a job in Newcastle, which is great. I did a job in Malaysia, which is great, which would just be, you know, the, the pandemic has been great for, really changing people's attitudes. It's going to be very interesting to see how this carries forward um, uh, you know, as we sort of move into more normality. But I, I found it really a big advantage. Or at least, at least it's levelling the playing field to a certain extent. And do you employ staff at the moment? Or are you uh, just a sole trader? No, no, no. I'm a company and we get, uh, I've gotten contractors in in the past where it's needed and casuals to help when it's a little bit busier. Um, you know, I'm hoping this is the financial year I hope to sort of really do something a bit different. Um, as I said, I really want to emphasize that, that this is not, you know, it's more important to get things as right as possible than to focus on um, sort of business concerns, especially with this high stake stuff, you know. You know, the, the, the information that we provide can have a material impact on someone else's life or their livelihood or their freedom sometimes. So it's, it's super important to get that right first. So, you know, we've really focused on um, getting the processes right, as I said, contractors sometimes, um, external parties sometimes to help. But, the, you know, with, you know this, this is the year I hope. But let's see, let's see. I, I don't want to commit, you know, I want to stay flexible. Um, you, know, the, you know, the future is always unknown. And have you had any significant yeah. barriers in terms of managing staff in relation to your vision impairment? Any attitudinal issues or anything? Ah, look, nothing that, okay, being fair about it, nothing that's unusual. Um, the, um, you know, I think that with any human relationship, there's always a risk of misunderstanding. When I've been working for other people and I've managed staff, um, there has been, you know, there's been friction, and and that's emerged from, um, you know, yeah, some people, um, yeah, it's probably emerged from a, a number of things. I don't want to, I don't want to chalk it up only to my vision impairment. I don't, I don't think that's fair, um, but you know, uh, that's probably a factor. Uh, and, you know, so, some person um, posted on social media a close up of my eyes and then pointing in their own way and, and the caption was God's mistake. So, I mean, you, go, you do get these kind of fairly aggressive um, um, comments, but, you know, I, I guess that everyone who, you know, I don't think that these kind of behaviours are, are, are certainly limited to the blind and low vision community. I think that anyone who who is a little bit different has experienced uh, um, being targeted 
uh, or, or you know being you know someone's jealous or frustrated or whatever and you know may, maybe it's partly you or maybe it's your situation I don't know uh, you know but this is this is this is the reality <laughs> so like, I, as I said I want to be cautious I, I'm sure that the eyes play a part in it um, you know but I, I don't want to I don't want to over egg it you know I think that everything everything that goes into the mix I think that managing staff, I think that if anyone, everyone, I'm blessed that people I work with generally tend to like me. Um, you know, I've got, I'm, you know, I've got some good clients that are regulars um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, look, so you can't please everyone and some people are going to feel uncomfortable and that's just how life is. Mm. Yeah. 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 And of course, you deal with assistive technology as most uh, vision impaired people will. Is there a particular type of assistive technology that you use on a regular basis? Uh, look, you know, remember that I have the superpower of uh, being a bit of a, um, you, know, uh, you know, I've got, I've got, I've, I'm very, very handy with computers. Um, and so um, I think that it would be fair to say that. When I'm operating my, like, let's say I'm writing in Word, you know, I've written a number of sort of scripts that that will, you know, enlarge everything for me while I'm drafting it up, and that's great. And I've got like, like, like a truly amazing number of keyboard shortcuts, so I don't have to muck around with the mouse. Uh, and I actually think that makes me, in some respects, more productive than someone that has to sort of reach over and move the mouse around. Um, so I, I always look for those kind of advantages. Uh, on on in, when I'm out and about, I'm, I have to, I'm compelled to use uh, Microsoft. Uh, I used to use um, I used to use a commercial product for Zoom, but now I use the built-in Windows one um, when I'm on a laptop because it's very difficult for me to sort of bend over and, and sort of get really close to the screen for a lengthy amount of time. Um, so I'll use a, a, a magnif you know, I'd use the magnifier that's built into Windows, which is these days is pretty good. Um, you know, it's not as good as some of the commercial stuff, but it's pretty good. Yeah, and these things typically are improving uh, year on year. What advice would you give to a blind or vision impaired person who's thinking about getting into digital forensic? Uh, what do you think it takes to, you know, to get into that sector? The most important um, attribute is a curiosity um, and a patience. So, uh, you know, you have to be very curious to sort of say, why does the program do that? Why does the software do that? And, and you know, you have to be very methodical about examining, um, you know, how something works. So, you know, it's not unusual for me to, you know, go very carefully through um, binary files or databases um, that programs create, it's not, you know, sometimes we'll design, so I'll design a scientific experiment to test how a program operates. Uh, so I, I just think you have to have that curiosity. Uh, I think you need to have a, um, and I think you need the ability to be able to communicate complex ideas very clearly and succinctly, you know, because if you've ever been involved with a, with a dispute, you can see that um, you know the the very best people can really communicate very well, uh, and so I think you really need those two skills: is the is a, is the outstanding communication skills, and a very high level of curiosity. 
uh, and I think that that will put you into good stead. I think that it's important to point out that that investigatory roles, there's not as much demand for them. If you're looking for something that's got a lot of demand, then the defense, sort of the cyber defense side is, is where a lot of demand is. So this is like roles where people are monitoring networks or people are you know, establishing control systems and auditing the things are operating the way they should. But investigatory roles, there's less of them. Uh, you know, they're out there, and, and I think they're going to be there for a while, but I think that there's less demand. So it's something to think about carefully. That's what I'm saying. I think that this is still an evolving field, and I think that there's still um, opportunities out there to sort of you know find your niche, if you will. Because you know, cybersecurity is a, a broad, a hugely broad field. Right? There's, there's, there's. You know, we 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 think of, uh, you know, you know, we think of stories about people gaining unauthorized access to systems. That's what we mostly think about with cybersecurity. But that's not that's not the whole story, right? Um, you know, there's 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 people who, um, you know, there's people who audit systems. There's people who do coding, but they need to review code to make sure it's secure. There's so many different fields. Um, and uh, I, I still think there's a lot of, you know, it's, there's a lot of opportunity out there for people who are interested. Mm. What sort of advice would you give people who are thinking of starting their own business? I think regardless of their um, background, I think that um, anyone who starts up a business, you know, it should, we should be celebrating. We should be celebrating that person. Uh, I think um, that it is an extremely difficult thing to do. Um, you know, you need to, as I said, the, the key theme here is to find that niche and to, exp and to really serve it. Um, and, 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 and to a certain extent, that sounds easy, but there's so much... Uh, there's so much that sits beside, that sits behind that. There's so much hard work. There's so much emotion. Um, you know, and there's potentially loss because not all businesses are successful or not as successful as you'd hope them to be. And you know, you know, if you're doing it, you need to accept that. I, I, anyone who is an entrepreneur, we, you know, we really, we need to take, we need to take our hats off to. Uh, I think that. Uh, if you're blind or visually impaired, I think that your cost and risk matrix looks different to most other people. Um, being frank about it, um, you know, employment is a little bit trickier. Uh, you know, I found it trickier uh, and I, I no doubt that people in my situation or with more severe vision impairment find it tricky. Um, and on that basis, you know, you, people are hiring, to a certain extent when they're hiring you, they're hiring a person. Uh, and sometimes it's hard for people to look past that, that vision impairment and see the person that sits behind. Sometimes, I'm not saying all people are like that, but sometimes it is. In the business setting, I think you have an easier run of it because they're not hiring the person, they're hiring the product. They're buying the product or buying the service. And the fact that you're, um, you've got a you've got a visual situation. That's kind of a colourful part of the story, uh, and you know that's kind of interesting. Um, and you know, I always you know, so that that's I think that you should think about it. I think that um, 
if you've got the opportunity to give it a go, you should give it a go. But you also should recognise that people who don't face the same challenges that we face also find it this difficult. Uh, and, and it's almost like you're getting through, you know, you, you kind of got to roll a six over and over again, uh, multiple times in a row uh, for, it, for it to really take off. Um, you know, you need to accept that there's a risk involved. I don't, I don't think you should go in, you know, and I don't think anyone would suggest otherwise. I don't think anyone's going into this without appreciating what's going on. Uh, but yeah, so I think that, that I, I, my personal thing is think about it carefully and think about it as an option. People, and, and, and also accept that there's so many people that want to help. It's such a, it's such a, I think that other business owners, they're not going to do it for you, but they kind of understand the, the, the situation. You know, it's emotional. It's, 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 you have to get up and you have to keep on going. And, you know, um, look for sources of support. There's so many different groups that you can find that. Um, you know, it's up to you, but there's other people out there that know what you'd be going through and you should seek, you should seek them out. Well, Matt, thanks once again for being a part of this uh, this program, and it's been great to hear more about your business, and uh, best of luck for the future. I appreciate it. Yeah, hopefully it's helpful. I hope it really helps someone um, think about it. You know, I think it's a, I think it's worth thinking about. That's what I reckon. So, yeah. And if you'd like to know more about Matt and his business, his website is notiondigitalforensics.com.au. That's notiondigitalforensics.com.au. This podcast series is brought to you in partnership with Vision Australia and Blind Citizens Australia. It forms a part of the Entrepreneurial Mindset webinar series, which is a division of the Eye to the Future project, BCA's major employment-related project. If you'd like to know more, have a look at bca.org.au or eyetothefuture.com.au. I'm Vaughan Benison. I'll speak to you again next time. You have been listening to An Eye for Business, exploring the entrepreneurial mindset of people who are blind or vision impaired. This is a series of programs brought to you in partnership with Australia and Vision Australia. Join us again next week.